Good morning. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. We are in a series called Intentional Christmas. This is the uh, second part of this series. And I told you last week that we would be defining a little bit more of what intentional Christmas looks like and what it means. And that's where we are this week. And so the idea, the whole idea and the premise of intentional Christmas, as you're going to find in this this, series, this, this message and then, and then the coming weeks is to actually venture out and be intentional about certain things in your life, not just in a time of Christmas like we are in now, but hopefully to develop and cultivate this culture of life where this is a part of what we do day in and day out. Next week, I'm going to actually put some things into your hands to help you with that as we begin to celebrate um, the birth of Christ in this season, and what that means for our life, and how that can transform our lives, not just today, but as we remember, but even in our day-to-day non-Christmas season walk with God. And so that's my hope and my desire. Like I said, next week I'm going to put some things in your hands that are going to help you to be intentional about helping others this season. And so as we get into this message, this part two the, uh, the ti- it's very simple. The title of my thoughts today are very simply more and better, more and better. You received the note sheet when you came in. You can track along with us. There'll be some notes there for you to keep track. It helps me keep on track, helps you guys keep on track. There's a, some blank on the back, and that way you guys can write some of the things down that, that maybe God speaks to you that aren't necessarily a part of the message that I'm preaching, but something that is personal for you. It also is a good spot. You have a connection card. It's a great opportunity to engage with us. If you're visiting, we'd love to know that you're visiting. If you have prayer needs, we want to be able to pray for you. If you have needs that need to be met, we are a church that desires to meet the needs of the people in our community and within this church. And so it's a great way to communicate with us. Any questions, anything at all, you can put that on a bucket we'll pass by later, and you can drop that connection card in that bucket. But like I said, this series called Intentional Christmas, last week we talked about how hope arrives and we talked about all the prophetic words that were given about the arrival of Jesus and how much hope that would bring and what, that, what would come. And we looked at the words of the prophet Isaiah and looked at the words of the prophet Micah and how they spoke to this glorious moment when Christ was born and they would speak that that prophecy would come forth about 700 years before it would actually happen. And then we continue on in Scripture, and then we find at, at, at the end of the prophet Malachi, you see this period of time that is just silent. 400 years, theologians believe that there was silence from God. People had deemed to lost hope. And if you can imagine for a moment, you have the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Micah, and they're shouting these these wonderful prophecies of the coming Messiah and King and hope on earth and, and the glory of God be seen, and then nothing for 400 years. We have a hard time hearing nothing for four minutes. Can you imagine 400 years? More than three and a half generations of people who did not hear from God. And then we have... Of course, what would take place that is echoed all through Scripture, all through the book of Luke, and we're going to get to that in just a couple, in a couple of weeks. But today, as we talk about this idea of more and better, we're going to focus 
on two passages of scripture. Very popular passage in John chapter 10, verse 10. You've heard it before. Um, I've got a different version I'm going to use, so take that off the screen for a moment, please. But the typical version that we've heard is, you know, we all know that a thief comes to kill, to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly, or life to the full. <laughs> but when I came across the message version of that scripture. And I don't use the message version too often for study. I don't use it too often for very much because it, it, in some places it, it loses translation and misses out, I think, on the, on the depth of what God is trying to say through his word. But in this context, I loved the way it, say it, it says it. So in John chapter 10, verse number 10, the message version, the Bible says, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life more and better life than they ever dreamed of. I love the way that that says that because it's, it's, it's stating the obvious that a thief is only there to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he says, but I have come that they can have a real, I love that first word, real life. Jesus didn't come for us to play life. He came so that we could have a real life. And then he says, it's e eternal life. More and better than they ever dreamed of. That's the desire of Jesus. If you can think of your life and say, man, if you, if you think about your life and you think about what you're expecting out of life and what you're dreaming out of life, it doesn't even measure up to what God wants to do in your life. And that's pretty cool because I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty imaginative person. I can imagine grand, amazing things. I have this ability to see some things that don't actually exist, but I just see them so clearly. And I'm like, that's, that's what I see. And I look at that and say, wow, that's amazing. But God has even greater things than what I can comprehend, a more and better life than I ever dreamed of. And so one of the main premise or main thoughts of, of today's message is going to be found, and it's right there in your notes as one of the first things that I mentioned is an intentionally Jesus-centered life, an intentionally Jesus-centered, others-focused life is a more and better life than you can ever think of. I was, my wife and I last night were watching a, uh, yes, we watched a Hallmark Christmas movies. Um, I got no shame in that. Some of them are, they're all predictable. Somebody rich from the city, lonely and lost, meets somebody from the country, and they hook it up and Merry Christmas. That's pretty much every Hallmark Christmas movie that there is. Some of them are really good, some of them are really lame, but it's just, I, I told you, I'm a lover of this season, so it includes the Hallmark, but there was a, an interruption in the movies for what was called Amy Grant's Tennessee Christmas. Amy Grant is an, an older Christian artist. Um, she's married to Vince Gill, who is an older country artist. And um, I know them. I, I know Vince Gill more than I knew Amy Grant because Amy Grant's popularity predated my salvation. But Vince Gill was somebody I actually listened to when I was younger because my parents loved him. And he was very popular in the late 80s, early 90s. But they did this Christmas special. And one of the things that she said, and it was pretty, and I like Christmas music, so one of the things that she said in this special, though, was if you ever want to experience life more than you could imagine, she said, then give yours away to others. And I was just like, wow, she is preaching my message. 
And so today we're going to unpack this idea. We're going to actually do it over the next couple of weeks. This is a two-part message within this series. And so in order to get there today, we're going to talk about these people in Scripture. These, there's a group of people that are actually quite important, but not mentioned very much as it relates to this idea of Christ coming. And we're going to talk about these people, and they're called, in Scripture, they're called the Magi, or what traditional Christmas has become, called them the wise men. And so you can open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. If you have it, it'll be up on the screen or in your device, however you choose to follow along in Scripture. But while we're getting there, let me set this up for you a little bit. So the Magi, these people otherwise known as wise men, we know that they have this, in this traditional idea of Christmas, you often see these Magi or these wise men represented with three. There's these three wise men. And, there could, and, we, and, first, and we have, first of all, we have no idea how many wise men there actually were. There could have been two, there could have been three, there could have even been a multitude. A lot of different theologians believe a lot of different things. I fall into the category of believing there was more than three. And I say that because the Bible says that as they entered Jerusalem, they caused a little bit of a, a I don't want to call it an upright, but they caused a little bit of focus to be drawn to them. So it's kind of hard. I think three folks can walk into a city and not really be noticed. So I think, personally, I think there might have been a little bit more. No other biblical basis in the reality is it doesn't much matter how many there were. But we also know the other, the other part of traditional Christmas is we see them in the manger. But the Magi actually never saw Jesus in the manger. They arrived several months later. Some even believe up to almost a year after he was born, just depends on people splitting hairs over scriptural interpretation. But we definitely know they were not there at the birth. So you see all these nativity scenes. They're biblically inaccurate. As beautiful as they are, they're very biblically inaccurate. But I want to talk to you a little bit about these magi because it's actually quite important, their role in scripture. And so the whole goal of the message I already talked to you about as far as the next couple of weeks is an intentionally Jesus-centered and others-focused life is more and better than you can ever dream of or think of. But today's message, we're going to focus on this idea. Jesus intentionally pursued you, so you should intentionally pursue Jesus. He intentionally pursued you so that you should intentionally pursue him. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read the first 12 verses, so bear with me for a moment um, as we get into this. I am going to try to take several drinks of water this morning because I've been dealing with a little bit of congestion type thing, so I want to make sure that my voice doesn't give way. But as we get to this, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, this is what the Bible says. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation this morning. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the reign of King Herod, about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. That's going to be the center thought of most of our message today in that one passage in verse number two. But just to give it context, I'm going to read the rest to you. The Bible says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, and was, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the lead, leading priests and teachers of the law, 
and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who is the shepherd for my people, Israel. And the Bible says in verse 7, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So that's the, that's the situation. That's what has taken place. And so let's look at the who's who real quick in this story. We have Herod, who is king. Matter of fact, self-proclaimed king of the Jews. He would suggest that I am actually the king of the Jews. And he was a half-Jew himself. He was what I would call a paranoid tyrant of a leader. We have a lot of history that we can find out about King Herod, even outside of Scripture. Within Scripture, you can find out a lot of history. But even outside of Scripture, you can find a lot of history about King Herod. We can find that he killed all three of his sons because he feared treason. You know, back in those days, your son was the heir to your throne, and kings were oftentimes not hoping to elevate their son, but rather subject them for as long as possible so they could keep their kingship the highest it could possibly be. And he would be one to kill all three of his sons because he feared treason. He killed his wife. He killed a lot of his own family members. Matter of fact, Caesar said this about him. He said he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. So he's, he's this tyrant of a leader. And then we have these wise men or the magi as they're referred to and says, and what we know about them is this. And this is, this is what's really cool because remember what I said last week? And even the week before, there was 700 years between the prophecy of the coming Messiah and his arrival. And there were some things that took place in the 700 years to prepare that points to the idea that Jesus intentionally is pursuing you. And so let's, let's look at the Magi. They were what's called kingmakers. They were trouble for Rome. And when they showed up in Jerusalem, it stirred up the religious leaders, and it stirred up the governmental leaders because they knew that these people, these wise men, these magi, were actually king makers. And why did they know that? You'd have to go back to Dan, the book of Daniel, and this is for those of you who like to study, this is, this is a really cool study for you. We're not going to get it into the depth of the study this morning as our time does not allow for that, but let's look at what we can learn about the magi. Let's look at Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we have this king named Nebuchadnezzar. He'd conquered a lot of lands, including Jerusalem. And then we have this Daniel, who is a Jew, an educated man. And so King Nebuchadnezzar would have this dream. 
And it troubled him in such a way that he had no idea what it meant, what the problem was. What, and and, and he, 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 was totally, he was looking, he was desperate for a response. He was desperate for an interpretation. So he brought all of his, his special people in, the people that he would deem as being able to interpret these things, being able to speak to his life, and, and said he's had this dream, yet he would not tell them what the dream was. He's like, I've got this dream. I need you to interpret it for me. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. I want you to guess and figure it out. That's really not setting them up for success in that moment. It's like, wait a minute. You got a dream. You want to interpret it. Okay, tell me the dream. I'll interpret it. But he refused to do that. He said, I want you to guess as to what it is. And his wise men, as it were, it was, said it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible to guess your dream. I would need to know the dream so I could interpret the dream. And then because they responded in that way to him, his decree was to have all of the wise men killed. You can't guess my dream, you, you, you should die. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. I'm going to have every wise man killed because they cannot, dress, they cannot guess my dream. So the Bible says they went looking for Daniel. So why, here's the first thing that we have to understand. When it comes to this idea of wise men and magi, the wise men of that day went looking for Daniel. Why Daniel? Because Daniel was considered a wise man. He was considered a magi, just like the ones that would come and visit Jesus. And so here's what we, here's what we know about the magi through Scripture. Most of them were like astrologers and looked to the stars that's how they would interpret things. They would, they would say they would look into the stars, and they would look into the heavens, and, and this is what the heavens would declare, and this is what the heavens would prepare for them. And, and they always looked into astrology before they looked into the one who had made those stars. And that's, a, that's still a common practice today. People will label you based on your, your, your sign, your horoscope sign. You know, people make certain assumptions of me based on my sign. They make certain assumptions on you based on your sign. It's, it's what people do. They read the horoscope in the paper and, and it says these things. I remember one of my favorite, favorite quotes in the history of the world as it relates to astrology came from probably a place you wouldn't expect it, but it came from the movie Waterboy. A laugh. Not expecting to hear about the Waterboy in church, right? And Bobby Boucher would say to this young lady named Vicki Valancourt. As you know, I've seen the movie many times, so I know their names. It's a funny movie. And she was in astrology, into astrology and everything. And he said to her, he says, maybe, so, so she read her horoscope, and, and, and her horoscope said something to the point of, you're going to be faced with a difficult challenge today. And so she says, well, that's just ridiculous because we're faced with difficult challenges every day. And his response, well, maybe when they leave their interpretations or their their horoscope, their thoughts open, so open-ended and so, um, so non-descriptive and non-specific, it's a lot less likely they find out that they are just a bunch of fakes. And so I love that idea because the reality is astrology, I, I, I would echo the words of another theologian that says, why would I look to the person to interpret the stars when I can literally look at the one who made the stars? And so it's this idea of what these magi, these wise men would do. And so God gave Daniel the dream. Because God, Daniel didn't look at the stars like the astrology magi did. He actually looked to the king, 
looked to God and God gave him the dream and the understanding of the dream. And so the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that Daniel knew God. Look at Daniel chapter two. That leads us to Daniel chapter two, verse number 48. The Bible says, then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. So Daniel, because God gave him the dream and the understanding of the dream, God elevated him to a place that made him ruler over all the wise men, meaning he was the one responsible for the raising up and the training of God's wise men. They would be kingmakers. That's their role. Their role would be to come in and to announce the king. And so he made Daniel the chief of all of them. So that was 600 years. So the prophecy took place 700 years. 600 years before Jesus, God would intentionally place Daniel in a position over all the wise men. Why is that important? Because Daniel would then train them and educate them that they would be to watch for this coming Messiah. So for 600 years, he would train them. Not, he wouldn't train them for all 600 years, obviously. He didn't live that long. But 600 years, his training, his influence... His teaching would be, look out for the coming Messiah. And they would, he would teach them to look at God and not to look at the stars. He would be trained in the prophecy of Isaiah and the prophecy of Micah. And you can see all through this process the intentionality of God. And so this is why I know that Jesus is intentionally pursuing you. Because you got to go back to John when he says, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that was the subject of a devotional in my household in the last couple of weeks where I sat down with my children to try to explain to them that process, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that that is an, an indication of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the same functioning universe at the same time. And so we know that to be the case based on Scripture. And so because... All existed in the beginning. Now we look to Daniel as he begins to prepare the way for Christ to come. He is intentionally setting this up to pursue you. And so just like God reshapes us as we find Christ, there were some things that were reshaped for them as well. And so here's what I believe. I believe that God desires to reshape two very specific things in your life. And these are, the last, these are the two things we're going to focus on for the rest of our time together. He desires to reshape two things in your life. Number one, your perspective. And number two, your calendar. And we're going to get to that in just a minute, just in just a second. So we're going to start number one. Jesus wants to reshape your perspective. He did this for the Magi. And so why would he want to, to do this? Look, verse number two tells us why. The Magi show up and they ask this question, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. We, we read that statement and we think, oh, that's, that's just what they do, right? But they've been looking for this Jesus for 600 years. And imagine you're in the field or you're at work or you're doing your thing and all of a sudden this star rises now, whatever they were focused on before immediately changed because the star of the king of the Jews has risen. We saw it and we decided to come. 
That word come literally means left home immediately to pursue. That's what that word come means. It sounds so ambiguous when you say, oh, it's just the word come, but actually means I've left home to pursue. No time waited. It's very, very similar to later when Jesus would call the disciples. And one of the disciples' response was, okay, well, let me go say goodbye to my mother. Let me go bury my father and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus' response was, that's a dead, bury the dead. I said, come, right now. And it's almost like, whoa, wait a minute. I got some other things going on. Let me, let me tie up some loose ends and then I'll come. But what we are doing when we do that, because we do that in our lives, let me tie up some loose ends and then I'll, then I'll come. But when we do that, what we're suggesting is that my loose ends, God, are far more important than you calling me and what you want me to do right now. So let me fix these and then I'll come. We, we constantly put coming to Christ and whatever that looks like for your life, whether that's through salvation or that's through the call of God that he has on your life or whatever the case is, we kind of put that to the test to say, you know what, let me, let me take care of me for a minute first and then I'll come, come after you. And we place ourselves in this unhealthy place above God and his desire for our life, but that's neither here, not, not part of what I want to preach today. But these we have this idea, and it, does, it is a little bit about what's in my message, but we have this idea, and you've heard it said, look out for number one, right? Always got to look out for number one. And I would actually, some people would say, oh, you never need to look out for number one. You need to look out for everyone else. And I, but I would suggest this is the perspective change. I would say it's okay to look out for number one. It's important, as a matter of fact, to look out for number one. As a matter of fact, it is critical to look out for number one. The challenge is, who's number one? If you're number one, then we have an issue. But if you're looking out for Jesus and he's number one, now, now we've gotten some things in alignment. I can look out for number one. And as soon as you answer that question of who number one is, your perspective shifts. You know, we talked about the who's who in this message for just a moment. We talked about Herod and we talked about what was go the Magi. And so there are three responses within this perspective that I want you to see. The very first one is with King Herod. So oftentimes when Jesus calls and when he says come, we, we can find our response in one of these three. The first one being hostile. Do you have a hostile response towards God? Now, that can be everything from a, Psh, I don't need this Jesus thing. That's not even real. That's some history made up story. That makes no sense. It can be as hostile as that. Or in Herod's, in Herod's depiction, we can find later that he ordered the what? The killing of all Hebrew children, right? That's a pretty hostile response to God's arrival. So Herod answered this question because he declared himself number one. He gave himself the title of king of the Jews. He would become hostile towards Jesus. So much so that God would warn the wise men, don't go back to Herod. Because you're likely to die like, they, like, like he's going to kill everyone else. And he would try to then remove Jesus from the equation. Because after all, if, this, if I kill every Hebrew child two years old and younger, then this Messiah can't possibly dethrone me as king of the Jews. That's his thought process is I'm going to be dethroned. I'm looking out for myself. And if you're looking out for the wrong number one, when the right one shows up, you're in trouble. And that's where Herod found himself, in trouble. The second response you can find through Scripture is this response of being indifferent. 
And we find that in the religious leaders. Within the same message, within the same context, if you look at verse number two, and you, and you see the you see where, the chapter number two, sorry, and you see the question that they pose, where is the newborn king of the Jews? And then Herod then poses the same question because he's disturbed by hearing this. And he says to the religious law leaders, and he says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And their response, see, this is part of, this is part of Bible study. This is why studying scripture is so important, not just contextually in its original language, but actually in, and I'm not a big fan of this, but actually in its English language parts, like whether it's past or present or future, the way it's written or how it's written, you can see in scripture where they use exclamation points for emphatically saying something. This would be the exact opposite if you read it in its context. And it says, when he says, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, in, in, Lost my thought there for a second. In Bethlehem in Judea, that's their response. Where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. It was in passing. It was an indifference because they didn't actually believe that he was born. Because they didn't believe that's how it would take place. They're expecting this arrival of Jesus on this white horse. The one they're going to get. Just the wrong time frame. They're expecting what's going to take place here in Revelation, missing what's about to take place in, the, in, their, in their presence and, and sense of missed Jesus is arrival. And so they're indifferent. And oftentimes when we look at, and you can look through, you can look through this in a lot of different places, religious leaders look at this and think, eh, I don't think this is the guy. I mean, nothing good comes from Nazareth. I mean, it's, he's in a manger for goodness sake. He's, they put cows in the manger, put a little feeding trough. They put him in a little feeding trough. It's like, that can't be the king of the Jews. He would never arrive that way. So they're even thinking that his arrival was supposed to be this majestic thing. So they're indifferent about what they have. And so what did they do? They had the information. And when they were asked where the Messiah would be born, they could look right at Micah because they had the information. Micah was the information. Micah was the prophet that said he would be born in Bethlehem. But they're, the having the right information never actually changed their response. So what does that mean for you and I? Having the right information never actually changes your response. You can grow up in church. You can even make declarative statements like Jesus is the king of the Jews or Jesus is my Lord and Savior. You can say that he is the son of God and you can say all those things and they actually make no difference in your life. That's a very real assessment of Christianity today. The church right now around the country is full of people who are declaring, God, you are my savior, but it really makes no difference in their life except for that Sunday or that Saturday or that Wednesday when they're in Bible study or whatever. There are people that are coming to church four and five days a week, yet Jesus isn't really making that much of a difference to them because there's there's this indifference about it because information is not transformation. Just because you have the information doesn't mean you've been changed. Matter of fact, in order to get to that transformation, you have to look at the third response we're going to mention right now, and that comes from the Magi. That comes when they said that I come to worship him. When they asked the question, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
That transformation, that information does not transform us until we get to that idea that we have to worship him. Now, we got to understand what does that look like? What does worship actually look like? Well, in the Hebrew language, words have images attached to them. Hebrew is very, very big on using imagery. And when the Magi are saying we come to worship him, they're not saying they've come to church to sit in a seat to lift up their hands and shout hallelujah. They've come to worship him. And when they, they finish to continue the story, what's the first thing they do when they encounter Jesus? They bow down before him saying, you are, Matt, now think about this. These are magi. These are the wisest people in the world. They are kingmakers, and they're coming and bowing down to this one-year-old baby. We talk about a, a level of awe and respect and humility to bow down to a baby, one who can't even speak to you, one who can't even really acknowledge who you actually are. They're bowing down before him. Matter of fact, that word worship in the Hebrew is actually translated literally in the image of a dog licking its master's hand. And I've shared this thought before, so I won't share too deep on this. But if you have a dog, I don't suggest you do this because it's cruel. But you, if you, you, if you, if you were mad enough at your dog and you decided I'm going to slap my dog in the face because he won't shut up, or whatever, because people do it, what's that dog going to do? That dog's going to squeal and run away, but is that dog going to stay away? That dog is going to come right back to the hand that slapped him and lick it and show nothing but love and affection. That's the image of worship to Jesus, that Jesus isn't going to slap us like an owner would slap his dog, but it's that, that, that sense of awe and humility that suggests I'm going to bow before Jesus because he's the one supremely in control of my life. And everything that I do, that's my dedication to him. The same dedication you can find in an animal as he subjects himself to humanity. So the moment they discovered there's this new king, they worshipped. And as soon as they realized that he has been pursuing them, they pursued him. See, the arrival of the star was Jesus pursuing us. I'm here. I'm announcing my presence on earth I've pursued you, now come after me. And that's what the wise men did. And so we all fall into one of these categories. And most of us don't even realize what category we're in. We all fall into the category of either being hostile, being indifferent, or worship. And I would suggest, prayerfully, you consider what category you're in. And I say that very humbly, prayerfully suggest because pride would suggest, huh, I worship. That's my life. That's who I am. But I would challenge that. Not right this moment, because the next point is going to challenge it for me. So the moment we worship, it will not only change our perspective, but here's the other thing it changes. And this is how you can really see if somebody truly has this passion to worship God like the Magi did. It changes your calendar. The moment it truly reshapes the way you see life, it will reshape what you do with your life. 
I mean, if we say my perspective has changed, but it doesn't change my actions, it doesn't change my calendar, it doesn't change the way I invest or use my time, then have we actually had our perspective reshaped? It's really easy to say, oh, my perspective has been changed, but my actions don't change. So if my actions aren't changed, is my perspective really changed? I I can stand up here all day long and say no. Because I look at myself, I turn myself inside out and say, there are things that I look at and say, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do, but yet I don't do it. So what does that mean? It means my perspective has not shifted enough for me to then say, this is what I have to do. So our calendar is affected. The way we invest our time is affected. We don't really believe what we say we believe unless it is evidenced in the way we live our lives. It's a perfect thing. It's a perfect example of saying, you know, if if somebody comes to you and says, man, I serve the Lord and, and praise God for all of his blessings in my life and blah, 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 blah. Yet they declare how blessed they are, but won't help anyone in need. Or they declare how blessed they are, but they'll come over here on the side and say, can you believe what that girl's wearing in church? Or they'll come over here and say, man, see the pastor in his fancy car and his nice house. And, or they come over here, and that's not me, obviously. But we come over here, come over here and say, man, that worship, just wasn't feeling it today. They come over, these are all things that happen in, every, in most believers' lives that proves evidence contrary to the actual perspective change. So your calendar... Second point, your calendar is shaped by your perspective. And we're going to stay right there in verse number two to see the evidence of it. Where, the question is, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. They saw the star. They perceived Jesus pursuing them, so they dropped everything to pursue him. Their calendar was changed, that they would do would change. It says, we saw his star and we have come. We saw that he has invaded earth and he's pursuing me, so now I am going to pursue him. The moment they recognized Jesus was number one, it changed their calendar. And this is a dramatic change to calendar because they journeyed on their feet. That's a long way to walk. Takes a long time to get there. And then to come back a whole nother route takes a long time. This was a significant change to their life. And this is true about our life. The moment we decide what we value in life, we wrap our entire calendar around it. And this is, this, this is, this is absolutely true. I mean, when you look at, this is true in our faith. This is true in business. It's true in marriage. It's true in family. This is true in every aspect of our life. When we value something, we build our calendar around it. And if we don't, then it doesn't really much matter. Because here's what I've come to realize. When it comes to my calendar and what I value, I can look at life and say, man, I love doing this and I I love the idea of this. But if I don't build my calendar and I don't shape and place that as an important thing, then I really don't love it. Perfect example is this. I used to love playing, playing softball. Once I got past the whole baseball thing and got into softball, I said, man, I love this and I love going to tournaments and I love competing because I'm a competitor and I don't like to lose. And so I want to get up there. I want to hit the ball as hard as I possibly can. And I want to do it as for as long as I possibly can. And there were times when I would get up at five o'clock in the morning 
to hit the road, to be at a softball tournament for a game that starts at 7. I would get up at 5. I would drive an hour to be at the game an hour early to get myself prepared to play a game that starts at 7. And I would not hit the snooze to wake up. My alarm would go off and ask my wife. She'd tell you, bugged her. Because I'd swing out of bed. She's like, "Uh uh-huh, you get out of bed, no problem for that. Anything else? Why? Because it had value to me. So my calendar was then shaped by it in that moment. And that's, that's, that's just life. If it came down to, okay, I got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go work out because I need to get in shape, guess what? I'm snoozing until it's time to get up for work. Because I'm not trying. That's not, that, that doesn't have a lot of value. And it should, but it doesn't have, in those moments, it doesn't have a lot of value because I'm not shaping my calendar and my schedule around it. See, you got to look at this. Have you ever noticed... Have you ever noticed when you do not want to do something, any excuse is acceptable? When you don't want to do it, any excuse that you can come up with is acceptable. So here's show of hands. You're going to have to engage with me for a moment, all right? I feel like you're looking at me and lolling away at me, so make you engage with me a moment. How many of you have ever felt obligated to do something or to be part of something that you wanted nothing to do with? Raise your hand. Admit it. How many of you have ever been obligated to do something, a part of something, but you wanted nothing to do with it, right? Thank you for your honesty. Appreciate that. You're hoping something will come up. And then when your schedule is interrupted and you can't be a part of what you wanted nothing to do with, you're like, praise God, you made a way. Jesus, you made a way for me not to have to be there. And then your next message is a text that says, hey, sorry, something came up. And now you're out of it. Like, whew, dodge that bullet. How many of you ever actually felt the opposite? When you have something you absolutely want to be a part of, then no excuse will ever keep you away. It doesn't make a difference. If you want to be a part of it, nothing will keep you away from it. You will make that decision. You'll wrap your calendar around it, and nothing will keep, this, keep you away from this. And this is true of Jesus. If you want to worship him on Sunday, then no excuse will ever keep you away. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I hear them all. I hear every excuse imaginable of why I couldn't be in worship on Sunday. If I want to worship, see, I made a decision many, many years ago to say I will worship God on Sunday every Sunday of my life because that's what I want to do. Now, does that mean I've been in church every single Sunday of my life? No, I've missed a few here and there. But when I'm on vacation, guess where I'm at on Sunday? Church. Took my family to Disney. We went to church on a Sunday. It's, it's because it's just it become so important to me to worship God on a Sunday. Not that any other day is not important because they are, but it's become so important to me that I don't miss it for nothing. For nothing. If I'm sick as a dog, I'll be in church. I'll, I'll do it. If I have to be there a few minutes late, I'll be in church. There was a time this summer, many of you saw me standing outside saying hi and greeting everybody in a coach's uniform. Because I was coaching my son on the baseball field, but said, I still want to get to church. So there's, if there's something that you want to be a part of, then there's nothing that will keep you away from it. And here's the reality. If you want to truly follow Jesus, then there's nothing that will stop you. 
The difficulties of life won't stop you. This is how real it gets and how serious it gets. If you want to build a strong marriage, then nothing will stop you. But it's got to be a part of your calendar. Here's why I think it happens. I think a lot of us have, and I, I, wish, I, could take, I wish I could take credit for this, but I can't because it's a powerful statement that was made by someone a lot smarter than me. Said, I believe that many, this is one of your, I think it's one of your fill in the blanks. Maybe it's just a note on there. Maybe it's not on there at all. I don't know. I can't remember what I put on there. But I've discovered that many have uphill dreams with downhill habits. They have an uphill dream with a downhill habit. We dream about doing more. We dream about getting ahead in life. And we dream about living this more and better life that God has for us. But we have habits where we never really require much of ourselves. And if we don't require much of ourselves, then we will never live the dream that we have. Yes, God desires for you to dream, and he actually desires to give you the desires of your heart. But if when we create these dreams, and we have downhill calendars, we can talk a lot about how we want a strong marriage, or we want our career, or we want our faith, but our investment level is probably about 60% of what we talk about. Think about I think about it like this. This is no knock on the average worker, because I am in that category. But here's the thing. You work an eight-hour day. Let's just get real for a minute. How many hours of the eight hours do you actually work? So here, here, I'll use myself as an example because I don't want to pick on y'all. I'll just pick on me. Early on in my life, prior to Jesus, I did construction. I built houses. I was a laborer on a construction team, and then I was a framing carpenter. And so I built houses. And I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'd have to drive an hour to work. But I wouldn't really go straight to work because I'd meet the boss and have breakfast. And we'd have breakfast at this little place and we'd talk about the day and what was going to happen. And then we would drive to work. And because where we were working was kind of like out in the middle of nowhere building this house, lunchtime came. Well, we'd pack up all the important expensive tools and then go into town and grab lunch at a local bar and grill. And an hour and a half later, we'd get back to work. Four o'clock comes and we're framing outside. The sun's starting to set in the wintertime and it's like, hey, we gotta pack. it takes about 30, 40 minutes to pack up all the tools. So we pack up all the tools, put them away, get on the road, head home. We'll get home and consider that about a 10-hour day when the reality is we work six of the 10 hours. This is just the reality of life. I go to work even at Chick-fil-A. If I'm working eight hours, they're getting four and a half, five solid hours where I'm actually working hard. Goes for the whole team that works there. Think about your job. It probably goes for that. I mean, how much of your time sometimes is spent like this? Having a conversation. Everyone in some capacity has this in their lives. And so if I consider that I'm working a 10-hour day but actually only get six to six and a half hours of work in, then I'm actually only completing 60 to 65% of the 100% that I'm talking about. This is a biblical, a spiritual principle that we do in our lives. We talk about a strong marriage. We talk about our career. We talk about our faith. We talk about the dreams we have, but yet we only want to walk it out 60% of the time. 60% is a D. And in my house, it's, you might as well be failing. See, but not for the Magi. When they found out Jesus is king, they changed their calendar immediately. 
That's why we're launching off this idea of an intentional Christmas. Because God is intentional. Jesus intentionally pursued you 700 years before you ever was spoken. It was spoken in the 700 years, but he actually began pursuing you in the beginning. Is when he began pursuing you. And this needs to be an area, God is intentional, God is practical, and this needs to be an area of our lives that we address. No one in this room is exempt, not even myself. God, is, God has some uphill dreams for all of us. But it's time to have our habits, our uphill habits match our uphill dreams and ultimately create this uphill calendar. So there's some practical things I want to give to you. Yes, I like to preach the power of the word, but I love practicality. Some people are like, oh, it's too practical. The church needs to... If you don't give me something that I can actually do something with, then what you're preaching at me is great and all, but come Monday morning at, church, at, at work, I'm not going to remember it. I'm just going to be like, man, my pastor was preaching. What do you say? I don't know. That's why I want to make it practical. That's why it's got to make some sense. So there's four practical changes I'm going to give you, and I'm going to give them to you quickly because I'm going to wrap up the message here in the next... Five to seven minutes. So four practical changes that lead you to uphill dreams that God has for your life, this more and better life of health, faith, marriage, whatever it is. I wish you could take credit for this too, but I can't. This is, this is some of the practicality that I've studied and learned along the way, mostly from other leaders and other pastors, just kind of put it together. So the very first one is this. Write down what you value. Write down what you value. Do you value God? Don't say that he is your calendar, and don't say that you value him if your calendar doesn't reflect it. Be real. This is a moment to be real. Because if all, if all we are is fake with ourselves, then we will never accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. Sit down and be real with you. And I'm not saying beat yourself up and say, oh, you're worthless and you have no worth. and no, have no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, if you value Jesus as your walk, as your life, then be real. How much time do you give him? How much time do you pray? How much time do you go to church? How much time do you serve? How much do you give? All of these things go into my value of Jesus. So write it down what you value. That's very practical. It's also very biblical. Habakkuk said in chapter 2, verse 2, lay your vision out plainly on a tablet so he who sees it can run with it. Guess who's seeing it when you lay it out? You are. So you get the opportunity to run with it. Number two. So number one, we're going to write down what's valued. Number two, create a calendar around your values. Yes, you have to work. Yes, you have to make a living. Yes, you have to feed your family. But create a calendar around what you value. There are things you have to do daily, weekly, and monthly that affect what you value. If you value Jesus and you value a relationship with God, then attending church on a weekly basis should be a part of your calendar. Praying on a daily basis should be part of your calendar. One in every seven days is intentionally meant to be committed to God. If you look at the Old Testament, talked it about at the Sabbath, that you didn't work. The Sabbath was a Saturday. You don't work on a Saturday. And, then, and it was a big deal. It was such a big deal that the, the religious leaders at the time were like, Jesus, you're a blasphemer because you're working on, on a Saturday. You're healing people. You're doing different things. You're doing miraculous things on Saturday. That's work. You're not supposed to be working on a Saturday. You're breaking the law. And then it was commonly changed, commonly a New Testament church changed to a Sunday, mainly because Jesus rose on a Sunday, so they equated that to the Lord's Day, and this is the day we're going to make the Lord. This is why we have church on Sunday. 
It's not a bad thing. It's not a wrong thing. It is, it's, it's, it's what it is. But see, that's why we're supposed to work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. God's design was to spend a day with him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, he even spoke it. People often say, you know, oh, church, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to go to church to be a believer. I don't have to go to church. It's not necessary. And they don't want to go to church because it's not a value to them because Jesus truly isn't really a value to them. Yes, I said it, and it's true. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So they're sitting around, having dialogue, having conversations, saying, how can we motivate one another to these acts of love and good works? Then he says, now verse 25, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This right here, it doesn't happen anymore. Anything, like I said, if this was a value, then no excuse will keep you away. But since it's not a value, anything will keep you away. Oh, well, you know, I got a little bit of a headache today, so I'm not going to come to church. Or, oh, you know, so-and-so has a soccer game, and it's at 1230, but, you know, I can't come to church because, because what? Church is over 1130, 1145? It's, it's not a value. That's, that's, the whole, that's the whole point of it. It's not a value. Oh, I didn't come to church today because, you know, I got up a little late. I don't want to walk in late. It's not a value. And because it's not a value, it's not part of your schedule. So we have to write down what values. We have to create a calendar around what we value. And this doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be in church 52 weeks of the year. I mean, we travel, we get sick, et cetera. There's things that happen. But like I said, I find that even if I'm not at home, I'm finding myself in church somewhere. I don't just miss the Lord's day. I don't just miss my time with God on a Sunday because I'm not in church. I've done it online. I've done it in, in another city, in another state, in another country. It's just, it's because it's a value. Number three, worship team, you can come and get sex. I'm about to wrap this up. <clears throat> I hope this is making some sense and a little bit practical for you, helping you. It helps me. So, number three. Create a daily things-to-do list. Create a daily things-to-do list. Let me tell you, I struggle with all of this that I'm talking to you about. So my best friend has become my calendar on my phone. I look at it daily. I look at it multiple times a day. So this has become my best friend is my calendar on my phone to the point that whatever I need to do, I put on my calendar. I need to call somebody. I actually put it on my calendar with a notification to say, hey, make sure I do this. I have lunch after church today. I write it in my calendar so I don't forget it. On Monday, I have to do, I have to meet my boss and do some work at the storage. I put it on my calendar so I don't forget it. On Tuesday, my, on, I'm sorry, on when, Tuesday and Wednesday seem pretty clear for me right now, which is kind of cool. But on Friday or Thursday, I have to work. I have to help out at Chick-fil-A and work through dinner. So it's on my calendar. On Saturday, my son has a basketball game at, 10, at 9.30 in the morning. It's on my calendar. If I need to call somebody, if it's an event, if it's important, it's on my calendar. I am moving now to putting my devotion time with my family on my calendar because we have hectic lives. You're busy just like we're busy. If it's not on your calendar, it's not going to get done. And then it becomes one of these things. Oh, man, I meant to do it. But create a daily things to-do list. List them 
And then very importantly, do them. Not just enough to list them, you have to do them. So what you write down today will be very important for tomorrow. What you write down tomorrow will be very important for the next day. If we live, here's what happens. This is what we do. We live accidentally hoping for something better in life. Accidents, better in life doesn't happen by accident. Better in life happens with intentionality. Let me be intentional about the things that I do. Let me be intentional about what I do. And number four, your last point is this. The last practical thing. And this is where, this is, I think, perhaps the most life-changing part of this entire process is very simple. Make room for people. You introverted folks, I love you. There's so much value in the way God wired you, but make room for people. You don't have to make room for 100 people, but make room for people. You extroverted folks, keep doing what you do. Make room for close relationships with people. See, people like myself, we talk to the world, but have very few, if any, close, close relationships. Make room for people. Make room to be in a relationship with people. Here we go. This is where it's life-changing, okay? It's not just about making room for people. Because here's what we often do with that thought. I'm going to make room for someone that needs me. I'm going to make room for someone that I can, I can talk to, I can help, I can mentor, I can, I can this. Make room for someone that can do that for you. It goes, it, it goes both ways. Make room to be in a relationship with people that will motivate you towards acts of love and good works. That's what the church was about in the New Testament. Motivating. That's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said. We motivate each other towards acts of hope and love and good works. So make room for people who will motivate you. Make room for people who will hold you accountable for your uphill dreams. That will call you out on your downhill calendar. Oh, I know, it's hard. It's painful. Rubs you the wrong way. That friction doesn't feel good when someone says, I know you say this, but what you're doing is really not matching up to what you say, so I don't think this is good. I think you need to make some adjustments. How many of you can't wait to hear that? But it's a necessary person in your life. Make room to bless people who need it. Make room to be a blessing to people who need that blessing. God has called us to live this intentional, Jesus-centered, and others-focused life. God's called us to live that intentional, Jesus-centered, and others-focused life. This week, we focus a lot on the Jesus-centered life. Next week, we're going to talk a lot more about others-focused. And there's some powerful things that we're going to talk about and mention Some of it's going to be difficult. Some of it's going to be hard. All of it's going to be liberating. All of it's going to be freeing. All of it's going to be powerful and empowering. So don't forget to join us again next Sunday. But as I wrap this up, make sure that you have this understanding that Jesus intentionally pursued you so we should intentionally pursue him. And if our pursuit of Jesus is what our, we're passionate about, then let your calendar reflect it. Because I got news for you. Parents, your relationship 
with God more important than your children. Your relationship, husbands, wives, your relationship with your spouse more important than your children. Every single bit of it. It's all these things. In order, make the household orderly. Out of order, creates chaos. It's just, I didn't write it. I didn't establish it. I just speak it because it's truth. These are the things that are most important in life. If we get it out of balance, then life gets chaotic. Let your calendar reflect what you value.